Blog Talk Radio. Pediatric Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. All right, today, well, let me start with this. Last week, I sent out an email, if you're on my email list, to ask for questions that you might have or that readers might have had about anything related to language development. It could be specific to their own child. It could be just a real general question. If you were a therapist, I said, hey, send me send me questions about kids on your caseload that you're having difficulty with. You know, I, I want to use the show and upcoming posts and upcoming books and DVDs and courses to address things that you are wondering about and you really, really want to know. Well, boy, did <laughs> my request get answered because I got lots and lots and lots of emails. And it's so funny, I, I'm looking at them and trying to group them into categories. And so what I thought I would start to do is just pick them off, kind of pick off the categories one by one. And today is the one that I received most often from parents of late talkers. And this is this is why I wanted to start with this one. If you're a parent, I know that even if you're a little further along with working with your late talker than, than this, it's the question that you had at the very beginning. And if you're a therapist, this is what parents want to ask you. <laughs> at the very beginning. So let's just tackle this question together. And it's something that we've talked about a little bit, well, probably more than that since we're up to 328 shows over the last nine years on this show. But it's really important, and this is important too if you're a therapist, because the same kinds of questions will come up from parents over and over and over again, and you need to have a solid response for that. It doesn't need to be like... (laughs) a brand new experience for you every time a parent asks you this question. And I'm sure if you've worked for years, you already know that. But for newer therapists, hey, you're going to get a lot of the same kinds of questions and the same kinds of requests. And they may not all be exactly the same. You know, a parent may not use the same words, but what they're trying to ask you is the same basic version of this. So let me just read the email. And this mom did not say, don't use my name, so I'm going to say Kathy is her name so she can recognize herself. And let me just say, too, when I answer a question that someone has sent me on the show or on in a post, I'm going to try my best to respond to that original questioner so that they realize, hey, she, she did answer me. Uh, and so, But I may not get to that. I may not get every single person because, like I said, I get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. And so this is the most efficient way to do it, I think. All right, so here's this email. She says, I know that children find it easiest to say certain sounds first. What are those sounds? For a child who is only saying a few words, is it best to try and help them say words formed from certain consonants and vowels? What words do you suggest it is best to first work on with a child who hardly says any words? And, man, I again, I get this question all the time at teachmetotalk.com. Or parents will say something like, hey, could you just design a set of lesson plans for me to teach my late talker who only says five words, you know, to significantly increase her vocabulary? And, you know, that request... Again, if you are working with a family directly, that's easier to do because then you can come up with a, a, 
using the questions that I'm about to ask and about to say how I do it. But you you can do that. It's much easier to do when you're sitting with a mom and when you're looking at a kid and when you're in a family's home or when they come and see you week after week. You can start to really address some of these things. But when it's pretty far removed, as in a question that you get from the Internet or <laughs> When, uh, again, a family just wants to take a certain set of, you know, teach your kid to talk in 50 easy lessons, it's not that simple because kids are all different and families are all different. You really can't take a canned program like that and know that it's relevant for every single child and every single family. And, again, especially for toddlers with developmental delays because we know that there are some outliers there. We know that for whatever reason things aren't moving along as we would expect them to do. And while those kinds of programs like taking an app with some, you know, pre-programmed words or, or, again, a little if you've bought one of those programs already from even, even from um, a, a broader developmental perspective, not necessarily a language, delayed language program. Again, those, par those programs can be helpful for parents because they do get them started in the right direction, but just know that it may not be relevant for every single kid or it may not even work for at all for a kid because the words that are chosen may, again, be so far removed from their everyday life and their everyday activities. So let's take an example. Anytime I look at <laughs> a workbook for toddlers, which I hate, by the way, or um, – an app or a game or any any program that's really marketed to parents to help te get their child have a jump on early learning. And again, it may just not even be language. It may just be in general, kind of a general prepare your kid for preschool or kindergarten program. The first word in any of those books are usually in alphabetical order, so it's usually apple. What if a kid's never seen an apple? What if the family does it routinely by fruit for whatever reason? What if mom has only cut up the apple and so the kid never sees <laughs> the whole red or green apple or mom only buys green apples and here's a red apple and we already know there's some problems maybe with this child with cognition so he doesn't really generalize. And again, even then for a toddler, it might be difficult for them to know that the green apple is the same as the red apple. Can you see how many problems there might be with taking that kind of approach with, we're just going to take these 25 words and make sure that he learns this first, or these 10 words and she learns this first and then we'll move on. So again, I just want to really caution you if you're a parent, it's not that easy to just take a list like that. And that's not how it's supposed to work anyway. We're supposed to really individualize anything that we teach a kid based on what they like and what their individual preferences are and what's meaningful for them. And so that's our first little thing that I, I say to parents is, okay, let's talk about what your child loves. What does he pay attention to? And usually we start with things that are favorites. So favorite things to eat, favorite things to do, so favorite activities, favorite people, uh, if a family has a pet, that certainly is something that we would look at. So just there, if the kid likes the pet, there are some children who hate the pet. And you know what? You can even use that. You can go with the opposite of these things, things that children are very emotional about communicating. So fussy kids who refuse things with really adamant body language or facial expressions, even things like uh, crying or turning away, 
I, I teach kids like that to say no or some kind of refusal word. And again, it may not be that they're really producing an intelligible no. It might be a word approximation like nah or uh-uh. Or even I had one kid years and years ago who would do a kind of a little sound effect, but his mom got it and she understood it. And I didn't teach him that per se. But that's just an idea. You want to take what a child is trying to communicate. And, again, it could be something that they love, that they want to ask for, make a request for, because that's a really powerful motivator, something they want and need a way to reliably ask for it so their parents understand what it is so you can avoid distress. But, again, sometimes kids need words for those things that are a little bit stressful for them so that they can communicate that with a word or with, a word approximation that would be much easier than falling apart. And certainly some parents will have some <laughs> issues with that, with saying something like you're teaching him to be negative, you, we don't, I don't want to teach, I don't feel like he should say no to me, you're teaching him to be um, non-compliant, or I've you know, had some more fundamentalist parents use words like disobedience, which, you know, okay. Uh, we're not doing that. We're giving them a way to communicate, and I would much rather hear a kid say a word than have a behavior uh, that's aggressive or non-communicative or uh, negative. I'd much rather that be associated or him use a word to convey that same kind of emotion. So there we go. So that's kind of what we start with at the beginning. Look at those really individual differences, all right, or and individual preferences. So beyond that though, if I were sitting with that mom and I would say, first of all, let's let's make this list of what your kid really, really loves or what he tries to emphatically communicate, let's start with those things. She didn't really ask that, though, in her question, though. She's asking at the very beginning about certain sounds. So beyond the whole individual preferences, which, again, is our starting point, let's do address her question, though. And let me just say this also has some variability with what a kid can and can't produce. Now, typically developing children, you know, if you're a speech pathologist, and you went to school a while ago, or even current, because I think I've shared before on the show a lot that my daughter is a senior majoring in communication uh, disorders at, at University of Kentucky. And, you know, when I look at her material, I think, well, gosh, this hasn't changed that much, you know, the basics with speech sound acquisition than I learned, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when I went to school. Uh, but we all have learned just from that developmental research that children typically used by labials first, so consonants that are made at the front of the mouth, so B's, P's, and M's, and then kind of the mid-range consonants, T's, N, and D, and then the consonants made at the back of your mouth, K and G. So our developmental research says that by 24 months, many, most, 75% of children, based on the study that I'm using from Stowell and Gammon, uh, produce the those consonant sounds in the beginning position or the initial position in words, uh, again, most kids can do that 
right away. But remember that, or by two, but remember that we're talking about late talkers here, so we're going to get some variability because their little systems are not developing in that typical way. And again, remember too, we're saying that 75% of children have mastered these speech sounds. So that still leaves 25% of kids. And again, those are the kids that we're talking about, those late talkers or kids who already have a diagnosis that for some reason or another are not acquiring speech, meaning the specific sounds that they use, or language, meaning the vocabulary or words that they use. So when a mom says something like, what sounds come first, we can go into our bilabial kind of <laughs> explanation if you're a therapist, and again, those sounds made with both of your lips, P's, B's, and M's, uh, we can go into that, but realize that you're not talking about a kid who has typical development, otherwise that you wouldn't, there would be no reason for you to see them in the first place. So we have to kind of keep that in mind, even when we're sharing this evidence-based information, you know, our kids are going to be the outliers from there. And let's look at other kinds of information that other speech pathologists have presented. Pam Marshalla, wonderful, um, she's just left a legacy of fantastic information for speech-language pathologists. She really talked about when she listed the sounds that she felt like, based on her experience and her research for sound acquisition, that kids do nasals first. So M's, N's, and ing, that ing sound. Uh, prevalent for English speakers a lot at ends of words, walking, talking. So we're not going to hear that as much in real words as you do just in vocalizations or babbling when children are acquiring sounds. And then her second list of consonants, she had B's, D's, and G's, so voiced consonants coming in, and then unvoiced consonants, P's, T's, and K, or a K. And then she lists um, some later developing consonants after that, F, D, T, H, S, S, Z, C, H, and H. And after that, the wa sound and ya. And some therapists read that list and think that's completely different than what I learned. And that's true. That's completely different than what I thought. But again, when you're looking at late talkers and when she's looking at too just babbling and just uh, when children start to first produce sounds. And remember for some typically developing babies, we think about that happening six months, nine months, 12 months. But for those of us who work with toddlers with communication delays and disorders, that vocalization or that early period may come much, much later. It might be when a kid is two. For a kid who has a significant medical diagnosis, it might be much later when they're three or four and finally start to vocalize. So think about that too. There's also other factors that go into that. And that's why I started the show with, man, this is a loaded question, even though it's common with what parents want to know, we have to really, really consider all of the other factors that are <laughs> coming into play here. For a kid with lower muscle tone that can hardly get his lips closed, who, who has a lot of open mouth posturing all the time, and again, it could be muscle tone, or it could even be, at, let's say, a kid who has chronic nasal congestion. He keeps his mouth open. Why? Because he cannot breathe <laughs> unless his mouth is open. And so for a kid like that, he may not master those early consonant sounds like P's, B's, and M's because from a physiological perspective, that little mouth needs to stay open <laughs> so his, he can get air. His airway is not obstructed by purposefully closing his lips. So to tell the parent, hey, these sounds come first, 
again, I know that we're using what we know about the developmental progression of speech sound acquisition. At the same time, it may not be relevant to that family at all. So you re or that child at all too. So you really, really have to look at that and talk to parents about. Even though this is what the research says, this is what I'm seeing with your child. So let's kind of tie this together. And so for a kid that is a mouth breather like that, or for a kid who has extremely low muscle tone, you may not work on getting that those. Uh, words with those bilabials first because it's just not practical. You might have more luck trying starting with words that uh with sounds that have K's and G's, you know, at the back of the mouth because that's going to be easier for him. So let's just kind of talk about that and walk through this list that I use and this is how exactly how I would talk to a parent about it. And again, I would go through the we start with the individual preferences that we already talked about, things that he absolutely loves, messages that he absolutely needs to communicate, what kind of little words can we come up with to do that. And then we I walk through that list of speech sound acquisition and say, hey, this is what research tells us, but your kid might have some individual factors that make us kind of throw all that out the window knowing that this is what typically developing kids do, we know that that's not happening because of X, Y, Z or whatever is, is going on with that child and say, so let's just kind of move on from there and talk about other factors that we can look at. I always choose or try to uh, choose high-frequency, really familiar words. And again, this kind of goes back to that individual preference thing, but it's a little broader than that. We want to pick words that a toddler hears all the time and words that a toddler <laughs> needs to get through the day and get his daily routines met. And again, this is a little bit individualistic. I gave the example of apple. You know, for some kids, if you're saying milk and they're lactose intolerant and they don't have a milk substitute that they drink, but milk is on that early vocabulary list, again, you can see how that is just not going to be important for that two-year-old who hardly says anything. Why in the world would you work on a word that never comes up <laughs> in his daily life? So look at a family's, um, what they already do. That's why if we're working in state early intervention programs, that's the whole reason that an IFSP was developed, that individualized family service plan. We have to look at what families already do. We have to look at what what is important to them. We have to look at the course of their day. And again, you're not just looking at what a family says is important or what what verbal information they give you. If you're doing a, a <laughs> and you may have had this experience as a therapist, you're listening to a family talk about these great things that they do, what their what their family routine is like, what their day is like, but you figure out week after week after week after week that mom is being a little idealistic in what she said their routine is. You know, she says that they get up and eat breakfast, but you see them at 11 and she's just you know, doing a cereal bar or a Pop-Tart, and you realize that she was talking about cooking breakfast or that they're up early, and they could have been up early. This could might be their second waking of the day. But sometimes there are differences in what a family might say, and I get that as a mom. Boy, if I'm going to, uh, you know, if I'm going to a medical professional or uh, some other kind of person who doesn't know me, yeah, all of us 
have a tendency to want to put our best foot forward <laughs> and talk about how we want things to be rather than how they really, really are. So again, when you're thinking about vocabulary selection, look around when you are working with a family and think about what words might be super, super functional for a family, even if it might not quite match. Now, I'm not saying that parents intentionally lie or mislead or anything like that. And if you're a parent, oh my goodness, please don't think I'm saying that. I'm just saying that, again, all of us, all of us can have a disconnect <laughs> between what we're really wanting or hoping or our goal is for the day versus how we really are or what really seems to happen. So we're really going to focus on words that a kid hears often, words that matter, words that are functional, words that that kid really, really needs. So go through that with the family. Talk about their routines. Talk about their day. And again, that individual preferences piece. Talk about what their kid likes. Talk about what their kid hates. Talk about what seems to be the most frustrating for a parent. You know, when is he trying to tell you something that you just cannot understand what he says? Or when do you wish that he could tell you something that he can't seem to be able to figure out to say? Now, sometimes parents, too, that's kind of a loaded question because they're going to say things like, I wish you would tell me when he had to go to the bathroom when the child is nowhere near developmentally ready to potty train. So, again, as a therapist, you're going to have to navigate that and work through that and, and, and even do some education on that piece with, well, that's not realistic yet. Or, or you might not even say that that wording might be too harsh for some parents. You just might not. You might say something like, oh, we're not there yet. Let, let's let's talk about what we need today and what we think he can do today, not where we want him to be six months from now or a year from now. Let's talk about today. And so that will really, really help with looking at that. So for this mom who sent this email, I would say I want you just to think about, you know, over the next few days, really kind of jot yourself some notes about the kinds of things that he ate, the kinds of things that he wanted to do, the kinds of messages that he tried to communicate to you that you didn't understand, and again, what were some situations that seemed uh, pretty intense for both of you. Let's see if we can get some words in here that might alleviate some of that. And here's another thing, too. Sometimes kids and parents get, uh, we can't always start with things that are so distressing. Sometimes parents will say, oh, I need, he needs to tell me a word for pain. And I think, okay, that's fine, but if you don't know where he hurts, <laughs> you know, we need to point, we need to let him help, help him understand body parts first. And so, again, you're going to have to walk through lots of individual scenarios with families. There is no one way to do it or no one kind of one-size-fits-all with this. Really get in there and dig in and talk about what a family really, really needs. And when a parent says, this is a message I want him to be able to convey to me, you may have to walk that back several steps and say, you know, like that example with pain, you know, we've, we've got to have him realize he's uncomfortable and you've got to realize that he's uncomfortable and then we have some prerequisite things that we might have to work through first. So that's, that's our number one thing, those preferences, high-frequency, familiar words, and functional. What words does the kid really, really, really need to communicate? And if it's not an object that you can see <laughs> or an event that happens in a family's home a lot, that's not a priority for that child for language development. You can put that off and work on that later after you get those core words going first. The next consideration is form. What words are fairly easy 
for that kid to be able to say. So you're not going to begin with multisyllabic words or words with really difficult sound combinations. I've given this example a lot. Uh, I worked with a family, gosh, years and years and years ago, and the mom said, I really want him to learn how to say his name. And this little boy's name is Sebastian. And so for a kid who is not talking yet, can you see how that would not be very realistic? And so you have to really talk with parents about that too, about um, just with a kid who said nothing, it's going to be really, really difficult for them to pop out something that's too complex. We all know, too, that children, all kids, every toddler <laughs> at some point uses simplifications and approximations. And so you might say for a kid like that, you know, Sebastian's going to be too hard. Let's let's come up with some kind of nickname. Let's If that's important to you, if you really want him to be able to do that, Let's think of something simpler that he could say. And so think about those, uh, think about form for a little bit. And when you're thinking about that, I always talk with parents about looking at what a kid can and can't already say. So sounds and patterns a toddler already uses. And again, remember, we were talking about consonants before. So uh, I went through that little list, P, B, M, T, D, N, K, and G. Those are consonants, but kids use vowels too. And many, many times children with highly unintelligible speech don't use very many vowel sounds. And we don't really think about that like we should. I think now speech-language pathologists are getting a broader introduction to that and education with that. But I'm just going to tell you, when I went to school, grad school and even undergrad in the 70s and 80s, we did not spend as much time talking about vowels as we should. We talked a lot about consonant production, uh, but now they're doing a better job of that. And so be, be sure that you're paying attention to uh, that current sound inventory. What kinds of, you know, if he has a list of 10 words, even as a parent, you and don't think about what the word is supposed to sound like. Think about how a child really says the word. So let's use a word like milk. If he says ma, when you're writing down your little list of sounds and words he can already do, you would put an M for the beginning sound of that, but you're not going to put, you know, milk eh, there. He's not making that sound. He's saying uh. He's saying ma. So I would, I would tell a parent, okay, let's write a U right there. <laughs> let's write a U-H <laughs> so that you really know what sound he's making there, because that's real different. And a lot of times a parent will do that. They'll come in and they'll say, you know, I wrote this list of words, and he has 25 different words, and as a speech pathologist, a lot of times in early intervention, we don't get kids who already have a 25-word vocabulary. If they had a 25-word vocabulary, their parents might not even know that they need speech yet. And so, but a parent might, you know, write down the list of words, and even, even, a list that they think it's how their kids said it. And then as we're going back through it, I'm looking with them and talking with them about it, and they start to realize, oh, he doesn't have nearly as many sounds as I thought he did. He Or he, he says, buh, or bah, for lots of different things. You know, he might say, buh, for bubble, and for bath, and for bottle, and for bye-bye. And so <laughs> a parent's thinking, again, that B sound is there, but they're thinking that a child has all these different vowel sounds that he doesn't really have. And again, as a parent, this might be right now a little kind of like splitting hairs to you. You're thinking, I just want him to talk. I don't really care if he says it correctly. And that's the attitude that you're supposed to have. But as a speech pathologist, and and another kind of therapist, a developmental interventionist, 
an early interventionist, whatever you call yourself in your state, you're working on early development, um, so you're an educator, think about how a kid says those words too. And think really, even if your ear is not trained to hear those things, try to be a little bit more specific when you're listening so that you're going to have a better idea of what the real problem is. And so for kids who have these really limited sound repertoires, it makes complete sense to try to look at what sounds he can already do and think, are there some other core words that I can teach him that are relevant that he that, that he would use every day? Again, not something that he would never say or something that's kind of, you know, a rare occurrence. Let's think, okay, he's got a good buh sound there, like we said, for bubble and um, bath and bottle. You know, Look at your other words. Can you get bye-bye? Can you get um, boat, if he plays with the boat in the bathtub? If his uh, bubba for his brother's name or does his brother's name or some other family name, is there a B, a, a word that starts with that? So just really look at it from a common sense perspective and from a language perspective in that this is the sound he can make, which is the speech part. And let me see how many different... Um, vocabulary targets or new words that we can get from that. And again, it is a little frustrating for parents when kids use a word, that example that we've been talking about, buh, means, you know, ten different things. But at the same time, we get children talking more frequently. They get used to really labeling things, asking for things. And even if it's a lot of the words sound the same at the beginning, you have an opportunity to fix that as a child matures and develops and grows. You've just got to get him talking first. And, again, it's easier to get him talking and using language or using the vocabulary, learning new words, if we uh, start with where he already is, which is the sound that he can already say. So look at that. So if you And here's, here's what happens, I find out a lot, is that a late talker may have... Um, four or five different consonants. They're just, you know, he may only use <laughs> an N in sound in one word. So you really think, oh, gosh, he can already do it for no. Let's look at what other words are here. What other things can I choose from? What other things might he say? Now, remember that this speech sound um, or pattern analysis here, which if you're a speech pathologist, that's more like a phonological assessment. Remember, this is only a huge consideration if a child has a limited repertoire of sounds that he can already do. You will use those sounds to get some early success. And again, that makes everybody feel better. Mom feels better when she feels like, oh gosh, she said five new words today. You're going to feel better as a therapist when that happens. But eventually, <laughs> we are going to have to get those new sounds too. So don't completely shy away from a word just because you think, oh, he loves cookies, but I've never heard him say k before, so I'm not going to really teach that word. That's ridiculous too. Even if a kid said, oh, oh, for cookie or ee, -E for cookie, just or, or just an oh when he's never said cookie before, that's a step in the right direction. So word approximations are fine too. At some point, again, we are going to have to work on that speech sound development, but only after we really, really, really get language going. All right, so another kind of or a big part of this mom's question what words do you suggest that it's best to work on with a child who hardly says any words at all? 
again, we've talked about that this is maybe not the very best approach to use, but some parents really, really like a list, again, of really familiar words that would probably be relevant for their everyday situation. And we've got a list from... It's an, getting to be an older study now. It's from 2001, Bryn Mawr College, and it's the, a list that, that they identified the 25 words every toddler should be using by age two, which I kind of laugh at that since we've been talking so much about individual preferences. But let me just kind of read this list to you because I do think it's a pretty good one, <laughs> a pretty good starting point for parents. And this is probably the kind of information that this mom who emailed me this wants to know. And it's a good, again, starting point for many, many families on our caseload. So I'm just going to read it to you. If you're driving or exercising, you're not going to be able to write this down. But you can <laughs> look it up at teachmetotalk.com. And again, let me tell you, this list is in lots of my materials because I like this study and again, uh, it's just kind of a starting point. So here's the list. All gone, baby, ball, banana, bath, bye-bye, book. So look at that. One, two, three, four, five, six words on this list that start with that uh, initial B sound. So we were talking about before bilabials. Those words come in in typically developing children, those sounds typically come in first. So isn't that um, kind of supportive here with six words out of this 25-word list, start with a B, and then car, cat, cookie, and then daddy, dog, I, hat, hi or hello, hot, so three words there with an initial H, juice, milk, mommy, more, so three words there with an initial M, no and no's, and then shoe, thank you, and yes. All right, so those were the 25 words identified in that study that um, I don't remember the specific details, but I think what they did is just surveyed um, typically developing toddlers and found that these were the most common words. And again, if I have just had a little memory lapse here and don't remember the specific methodology or the population that they used for that study, please forgive me if I've misspoken but they're really pulling those common words. I use those words plus some general words. I still like requesting words. And again, both uh, more was on that list from the Bryn Mawr study, a requesting word like more or like please. Um, some therapists hate those words because they don't feel like they're specific enough. And they feel like that kids really generalize, or what they mean is overgeneralize those words, and then you're left with a kid who just says more all day long and you have no idea what he wants. I still like those general words because it gives parents a chance to practice, and you're never going to leave a kid at that point with words or signs like more or please. You've got to get in there and teach specifics too, but those are great ones to start with because they're so powerful and because, again, parents will practice those all day long. <laughs> Children will get lots and lots and lots and lots of opportunities to master those words, but know that we can't leave it there. You've got to move on and teach the specifics. And again, that's why so many therapists get wigged out and don't want to start with those words because you could end up with a parent who doesn't keep that vocabulary development going and it looks like a kid is stuck once he's kind of gotten there. And that's our job as therapists, that we might introduce these easier early requesting real general words at the beginning 
And then it's our job to keep moving that along. It's our job to say to a parent, all right, I like that you're using more, but remember now he's ready for something else. We can't just have one word or one sign here. Let's teach some specific um, requests. Let's make a list of every time that you're asking him to ask for more, I want you to keep a pretty um, good ongoing list of the words or the times that you asked him to say more or that you cued that, even that sign for more, if we're talking about vocabulary development beyond talking. And let's get, let's see if we can come up with how many times a day you're asking him to say that for what he's drinking. And what, what does he drink? You know, is It might just be two or three different things. And you say to mom, okay, great, we're going to work on those names for those specific liquids. <laughs> and we're going to give him more variability in his vocabulary and not just stay at that one word that could mean lots of different things. And so that's how you move it along. You start out super, super general at the beginning, and then you get the specificity. Then you get the variability beyond that. But you, you get that initial word or that initial um, that real general request word going first. And that's how I've always done it. And, again, I know that that sort of flies in the face of recommendations that you might hear from other folks and places, and that's okay too. But this is my rationale for it, and I'm sticking to it <laughs> because it's what's worked for me forever. And you may, again, find yourself doing this and then realizing, oh, the reason that this kid is stuck here with these general words, that he only has a handful of words, is because I'm not moving fast enough. I'm not thinking. I'm not helping this family expand. We've just stayed here at this general position too long. So give yourself some leeway there. Other kinds of all-purpose words that I really look at, too, all gone was on the list that I read earlier. But I, instead of all gone, I use all done a lot. And so kind of as um, inter, an interchangeable word for that. So if a kid can do a D but he can't do a G, I would certainly go with all done versus all gone. And remember, too, I forgot to say this when we were talking uh, just a minute ago, talking about those general requesting words like more and please, and uh, therapists or programs getting upset and saying that's too, you're not being specific enough. All kids start out when they first talk in that generalization piece. Lots of kids call every round object ball. Lots of kids call every man they see dada. <laughs> That's just how kids learn language development. We start out as something really, really general, and then we move it to something more specific when we get better labels and better descriptors. So that's certainly some, uh, a thing that as a parent you can think about or as a therapist you can explain to a parent. You know, we don't need to leave it here with this thing that's more general, but just know that's how all kids learn words. So it's how all kids learn how to talk at the beginning, and then it's up to us to kind of keep that going. So you don't heap any unnecessary guilt on <laughs> a family that uh, you're kind of going in and uh, sometimes you feel like you're beating them up a little bit because we're saying he only knows two words because that's all we've practiced. You know, it's our job to kind of gently help parents move on from there. All right, in that list of all-purpose words, did you notice that all of those, with the exception of no and yes and thank you, those kinds of social words and hi, the rest of those words were nouns. 
those were labels for things. Children need other parts of speech too. <laughs> and so action words or verbs are super important. So I include words like go and open and help with a big time requesting words. Other parts of speech too, really, really uh, important for language development, not only from an expressive perspective or what a kid can say, but from a receptive perspective, what they understand, so prepositions or location words. And that's how kids can follow directions. And so words like in and out and up and down and on and off, those are super important words. And I'll just tell you, too, for kids who are having a hard time with lots of consonants, that they speak in mostly vowels, and especially if there is some even subtle <laughs> differentiation in their vowels, start with prepositions or be sure that you're hitting prepositions just as hard as you're working on nouns or labels for things uh, because that can make a big, big difference too. And again, not only from an expressive perspective, but from that receptive perspective, from them understanding and being able to follow directions and really um, stay with their moms during everyday routines. If mom is saying, put it in, put it in, put it in here, you know, uh, they need to understand that and then it, uh, be able to say those things too. And I've found too, if we have lots of children who just have a handful of words, Remember that we need to get that vocabulary up to at least 35 words, but more fit, more like 50 to 75 words before we expect them to move on to phrases. But if they only have nouns, if you've only worked on names of people, places, and things, they're not going to be able to progress to phrases very easily because they need those other kinds of words or those other parts of speech if you kind of want to think about it and, and parents think about that like remembering back from English class and so you'll talk to a parent about that in that way. So prepositions and verbs are super, super, super important. So when I'm looking at vocabulary development for late talkers, um, I'm talking about that with parents, you know, from the get-go that we, you know, nouns are... <laughs> The part of speech are the kinds of words that children learn first, and they, they learn them too because of requesting. They're asking for specific things so that it makes sense that they would do that. And again, that certainly is what happens in typical development, but <laughs> we can't leave it there for our little late talkers. We have to be pretty intentional about the words that we're teaching as we're going so that when they get to the developmental point that they can use some phrases that we've done a good job of solid vocabulary development so that they can combine some existing words and get to phrases and sometimes we don't think about that as purposefully or intentionally as we should. So think about other kinds of words too when you're looking at all of these factors. So looking at some verbs or action words, looking at some other words for requesting like help, looking at some other words, e even a word, a pronoun like mine or me. Gosh, that's such a powerful word for children, especially if they have siblings, <laughs> especially if they go to daycare and have to defend their possessions or defend their turn. And again, parents sometimes think about that as us being a little negative in teaching their child. You know, they think that we should be teaching the word share rather than mine. <laughs> That's just not realistic for a two-year-old. We really need to, again, think about where all kids are. And kids at this phase do, are possessive. They do uh, think about themselves and have that, that kind of me, me, me or that egocentric 
uh, focus. They should. That's normal. That's a, a lot of adults are still like that. <laughs> Certainly teenagers are like that. And so you really talk to a parent about that and say, you know, I'd much rather have him use a word like mine or me than uh, have a physically aggressive behavior that he might use with a little friend. And so think about that. And mine are, and me are words, when a kid says mama, we were talking about before, looking at what a sound, or looking at the word uses, and then choosing new words based on that, that's a great one to go right to mine or me because, again, that's where kids are emotionally and developmentally, and so we teach that so that they have uh, a word that they can use in that situation. All right, briefly, I want to talk about reasons that, uh, you know what, we're not even going to do that today. Let's save that for next week because I think it'll it's going to be a lot longer than I can uh, give justice for. <laughs> here at the end of the show. But next week we're going to talk about reasons that the kinds of strategies or the kinds of words, reasons that you may be working on all of these things with the kid. You may say, okay, I've got his sound list and we're using that. And I've really done a good job of looking at what words he needs to get through the day. And I'm paying attention to that the words are easy to say. And when a word isn't easy to say, I'm, I'm teaching an approximation or I'm letting him say it the way he wants to say it because I really, I, I want, I'd rather get him communicating than worry about, you know, this over pickiness with he has to say it correctly. You know, any kind of approximation he wants to give me for a word is just fine. That's where we sort of left it today. I want to talk to you about reasons that when you're saying I'm doing everything right, working. next show we're going to talk about why those things may not work because there may be some other things that you need to consider first. All right, so we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, today, too, is just a 45-minute show. And um, we've kind of adopted this new format for 2018, so I hope that that's working for you like it is for me. And that's all for this week. Join me next week, and we'll pick right uh, back up where we're leaving off today. Thanks so much. Uh, talk to you.